After Jesus had left that place, he passed along the Sea of Galilee, and he went up the mountain where he sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the maimed, the blind, the mute, and many others. They put them at his feet, and he cured them, so that the crowd was amazed when they saw the mute was speaking, the maimed was whole, the lame was walking, and the blind was seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for the crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry, for they might faint on the way. The disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in the desert to feed such a great crowd? Jesus asked them, How many loaves have you? They said, Seven and a few small fish. Then, ordering the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and after giving them thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. And all of them ate and were filled. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Those who had eaten were 4,000 men, besides women and children. After sending away the crowds, he got into the boat, and they went to the region of Magadan. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, And to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. When the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. They said to one another, It is because we've brought no bread and we're becoming aware of it. Jesus said, You of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not perceive still? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he had told them not to beware of the yeast of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So if I were to tell you that uh, what was in this bag um, was not Winco cucumbers, but was actually... Uh, the most dangerous thing in the world. And then if I were to tell you it's not a weapon or anything of military grade, what comes to mind? Uh, I think this story really begs the question, where does the power of the world really lie? Like, what really is powerful? What's most powerful? Like, if I were to tell you, like, sometimes you can touch it, sometimes you can see it, but it doesn't have to be true for it still to have power. Thinking now of Gollum underneath the mountain, you know, and the whole little riddle thing, only I don't have a ring. Like, what, what is it? Because it seems to me that part of what's going on here with Jesus is he's trying to draw their attention, and we're going to see this unfold over the next couple chapters, or at least the next couple weekends, that he's really starting to draw attention to the power of certain things and what it is that we do with them. Uh, so I want to jump into that. First, I'd like to pray, God, Lord, we show up, um, some of us for the first time, some... We've been here for over a decade. Some of us were really connecting in our faith right now and others were wondering uh, what it is that we believe. God, my prayer would just be that uh, 
you, you, would, you would reward the time spent. Um, that it would seem like few things are more countercultural right now than getting out of bed and dragging your kids here and sitting in a row and doing this thing called church. And, and yet we're here because we see that there's this great value in it. And so my prayer would be that uh, for everyone here that uh, you'd reward them in, in ways that are helpful with where they're at with you and with life. Amen. I don't know if you're reading Matthew or if you're listening to the like, growing audio version on the podcast, but has the thought occurred to you that it seems like Matthew is going out of his way to make the disciples, especially the 12, look like idiots? Like, anybody else had that thought? Like, it just seems like over and over again, he seems to bring emphasis to the pathetic nature of the 12, which would include himself, because of course our author is, uh, he's one of them. I'm studying ahead right now for Easter. We're going to jump ahead to Matthew 26 through 28 and look at that Passion Week. And it seems especially clear in there. Like it's like Matthew, every chance he gets, he's running over the 12 with a bus. And I suppose on one level, if you've thought about that, there's something encouraging about that. That it, it seems like part of the narrative is like choosing to follow Jesus is a value. And yet uh, he's committed to growing us. He's He's not content with our faith, but he's committed to growing it and, and helping us grow and yet recognizes that there's a lot of work involved with that. But this story, just for me, it, it points it all out because if you just kind of play it through quickly in your head, we're, we're kind of in a cycle. It feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day, which was this last week, which, by the way, did, did the groundhog see his shadow? He did, okay. I don't even know what that means. Is that, that means February is March? Is that what that means? I don't know, I just get excited for March. February is my second favorite, one of my favorite months of the year because next month is March. Uh, but it feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day, doesn't it? Like there's, this, there's a bunch of people, they're healed, and all of a sudden someone recognizes they're hungry. But this one, it's hilarious, I think, if you slow down because Jesus, he, he heals all these people, there's this crowd, there's this thing that goes on, and then all of a sudden uh, he goes, hey, these guys are hungry, we should do something about it. And the disciples are like, well, what are we gonna do about that? I don't know what we could do about that. Never mind that it was just, it feels like a few days ago that there was a similar situation where like he fed him out of thin air, so to speak. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of an absurd story. And then we get to the back half of what we read. And to me, this week is a reminder that uh, the chapter titles weren't given, us to, by, given to us by the authors. Uh, they serve some value. But we gotta be careful to trust, in my opinion, the chapters themselves to kind of slice up the narrative themes of the gospel. Because then there's this other story where then they're going across the lake and Jesus is like, hey, be careful the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're like, dang it, we forgot, we forgot food. But again, like they're with Jesus. He's kind of made it clear, like don't sweat food. I got, I got the food thing covered. Which raises this question, and I got stuck here when I was studying this months ago. Like why do we need another feeding story? Like we just, again, if you've been with us and if you haven't, uh, it's not my intention to leave you out. We, we started this series way back in April and we didn't know why we started it. We've never done anything like this. We've always done topical, kind of more quote-unquote relevant stuff. But something happened first in me and then in us where we just started into the Gospel of Matthew. And I didn't understand why at first, but it's crystal clear to me now, quite frankly. And that was that we were in this season, and I think we're still there, but to less an extent, where it was like everything was thrown up in the air. It was like suddenly we couldn't assume anything Everything was up for grabs, our everyday life, our beliefs, our values, all of it. And I think what we're doing is just trying to grab hold of like, okay, so we have these original biographies of this person named Jesus. 
And for me, what's, what's had a lot of meaning is it's been this season of going, okay, so we're not trying to become progressive Christians and we're not trying to become conservative Christians. We're just trying to do our best job to understand what is the way of Jesus and how does that translate to Helena, Montana in 2022? So that's where we've been. But where we just were was another feeding story. This time it was 5,000, so there's differences. That was 5,000, this one's 4,000, that one was after one day, this one was after three days, that one was actually initiated by the disciples, they're the ones that originally recognized the hunger, this one was initiated by Jesus, that one there were five loaves and two fish, this one there were seven loaves and quote unquote a few small fish, that one was on a plain, this one was on a mountain, there's differences. And yet... When I got into it and was studying it, I'm like, I I don't see any differences significant enough to go, clearly, Matthew needed to include this. I mean, part of what we know about gospel scrolls, because these were originally written on gospels, and this comes into play especially in the gospel of Mark, but some would say in Matthew as well, is scrolls were pre-manufactured. And so word limits were built in. It wasn't 140 characters, but it was the length of the scroll. And so we know that that real estate was valuable. Some of the gospels, Mark, it would seem, is for certain one of them, not for certain, but it's, it's probable that part of what happened was he's like, dang, she told me I could only write five pages and I'm there. And it just ends. That's one of the possibilities. So my point would be that, that Matthew wouldn't just give us this story because he's exhausting the stories. The other gospels tell us there's so much more that could have been written. So why does Matthew, if we give him the benefit of the doubt, as the author, and again, I, I don't believe that the Bible was a golden tablet let down from heaven, that God worked through authors, but simultaneously. If we believe that this is an intentional act of the living God to give us scripture, why do we need two stories and why so close together? And again, remember, Matthew's not bound by our modern notions of chronology. So, so even then, there's some artistic license being taken. Why does he include this second feeding story? And to be honest with you, several months ago, as I studied it and did my system, which is a week or two, kind of just in the section and trying to figure out what is the section and then try to make sense of the section, I, I just moved on. It was the only time thus far since I've been studying this in my own time where I was just like, I, I don't get it, Lord. Like, I just, I can't see anything unique. I mean, yeah, the last one was a contrast of Herod and different types of doing power and different types of humanity or being a hero, but why do we need it? And so ironically, there was this point where I'm just like, I just gotta keep going and see. What I wanna show you is what happens when you keep going. Verse chapter 16, the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test Jesus, they asked him to show them a, a sign from heaven. Question. And of course, this didn't occur to me immediately. This is why you pay me to do this stuff, even though I did this in my, I guess, my own time. But lest it sound patronizing and the Bible being studied is something that normal people can't do. Question, like, when's the last time in Matthew's gospel someone tested Jesus? When's the last time someone came to Jesus and tested him? And then from a language standpoint especially, this word, the last time it was used, some of you are probably already there, it's right after Jesus' baptism, Matthew says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested, or some translations say to be tempted by the devil. So what did Matthew just do here in in, in chapter uh, 16 when he says he was tested by the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, I mean, let's let's do this. Like, Like Eddie Van Halen, um... I'm not a huge music guy, so sorry. There are all men that come to my mind. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, Eddie Van Halen, Eddie Vedder, someone give me a female guitarist. Who? I cannot hear anybody. 
Bonnie Raitt. Okay, we're going to go with... And Rob Cameron. What did I just do there? Or this is more, this is more my, my groove, like John Elway, Dan Marino, Tom Brady, and uh, is it Kellen Pitt? Or what is that guy's name that's going to get drafted this year? What's that guy from Pitt's name? Anybody? Yeah. Or, or, or let's just go uh, Dan Marino, John Elway, Tom Brady, and Joe Burrow. What did I just do there? Like, you just put them in a category. What does Matthew do when he goes, uh, the devil, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees? There's something going on there, right? So, so, so the people who test Jesus are, are, I mean, there's this evil thing going on. And what's the test? Well, Jesus, they, they ask for a sign, and Jesus says, nah, not going to do that. I think we'll get into in future chapters why he's not, because it seems like the sense is you've got plenty to go with already. That's not actually, more information is not going to solve the problem. But then he says this, an evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jonah's come up a few times or at least one other time already in Matthew. He'll come up again. What's the sign? It seems like there's a couple possibilities. I think it's possible that they both are possibilities simultaneously. One is, Jonah, if you're not familiar in the story, was an Old Testament prophet who at one point was supposed to do something for God. He didn't, and that resulted in him almost dying and the whole ship dying. And so he said, well, I'll tell you what the problem is. I'm your problem. Throw me overboard. And in its own, it would seem kind of act of suicide, so to speak. They throw him overboard, only God doesn't let him die. He's swallowed by a fish. I know this stuff is so believable. He's swallowed by a fish, and then after three days, he spit up on the beach. So Jesus says, I'm going to give you a sign, all right? It's the sign of Jonah. It would seem that part of that is the resurrection, that that after three days, in the belly of the earth, Jesus is, is he spit back out alive. But that's only part of it. The other sign is, what was Jonah called to do? He was called by God to go to a Gentile people in Nineveh, an evil, wicked people, and invite them back into communion with the living God of Israel to repent, to turn their way. And Jonah, he didn't want to do it because he was racist. And so he goes the opposite direction, literally like the exact opposite direction, thus the whole fish incident. Eventually he goes and they all repent. I don't know if all of them do, but there's this huge movement of God that goes through this massive city. So what's the sign of Jonah? Well, what's the last thing that we just read last week? Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon and this Canaanite woman who knows nothing of the complexity of the Jewish practices, expresses this very real faith in God. What's the sign of Jonah? Remember, Matthew is the Gentile gospel. What's the sign? You want a sign? While you guys are wasting my time, look at what all these people are doing with me, all these Gentile people. And yet we still haven't answered the question, why do we need another feeding story? And you keep going. I just this I, I love this one has been so helpful to me in my own sickness these last couple weeks. Now when Jesus came, oh excuse me, when the disciples reached the other side, so we're on the well, let me pick up. Then he left them and went away. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Huh. Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, in their defense, yeast was a really important part of their Jewish practices. Even in the preparation for Passover, or most especially in the preparation for Passover, yeast, uh, this is part of where Jesus messes with their culture because Jesus at least once uses it positively, but it's mostly negative in their culture. And before Passover, part of the preparation for this great feast of, of Israel 
part of the preparation was you get all the yeast out of your house because yeast was, was symbolic of the way sin works. That it starts small and it slowly takes over. And this is if you're wondering, why are we doing Lent? I think a big part of the reason why we're gonna start Lent on, on Ash Wednesday is, is, is Passover is the season where you take seriously that, that sin creeps in and takes over. It's a, functional, it's a functional decluttering. It's going, okay, in the same way that we have these months where we don't drink or these months where we do or don't do certain things, the month to get ready for your beach body, in the same way, we recognize that the, the human cycle is that sin creeps in and we, we deal with that hyper-intentionally. And so in their defense, Jesus takes this very familiar idea of yeast and they go, oh, jeez, okay, well, the yeast, they say to one another, it's because we've brought no bread. So again, like, there's just like, Tush. and becoming aware of it, Jesus said, you have little faith. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why do we need this second feeding story? Look at the next line here. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Which brings me back to this question, what's the most powerful thing in the world? Somewhat of an ironic question in light of everything we've dealt with for the last couple years and the reality of germs and then we've got Ukraine and Russia and all those things. What, what if Jesus would say, and I, sorry if it's corny, but I just, I think it's important. What if Jesus would say it's an idea? That nothing in the world has more power than a single idea. Like, what, what's he doing here? It seems to me, and you, you can choose to agree or disagree, that part of what he's reinforcing and part of what Matthew's reinforcing, because remember, the original church, the early church in the 70s and 80s, whenever this was written, what are they wrestling with? Intense persecution. And what's the message after two consecutive feeding stories and then Jesus offering a stern warning about the power of the ideas of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Wouldn't it be something like, hey, don't sweat God meeting your daily needs. You want to sweat something? You want to be scared of something? You want to be cautious towards something? Be cautious with ideas. I mean, stop and think. You, you, we, our, our lives are populated with positive and negative examples. An addiction, it's, a, it's an idea gone bad, isn't it? A great relationship, it's an idea gone well. What if ideas genuinely are the most powerful thing in the world? And what if Jesus' message here and the intentionality behind it is, is, okay, God, give us our day, our daily bread. Okay, God will take care of our daily needs. We should be cautious about ideas. And this actually, and this is, the, for me, I, this is where I was able to nerd out internally and personally. I, I think this begs us to go back to and Matthew's assuming that we're recalling what, what was going on in the temptations in Matthew 4. Let's just go, go back. Uh, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, that's the epitome of an idea, isn't it? I do it all the time. What if? If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
What's the idea being presented there? And isn't it, isn't it crazy to think that when trying to derail God's rescue operation for the world, the culmination of God's like showing back up in a new way, that to derail that, it wasn't military-grade weapons. It wasn't any number of the obvious things. It was just an idea. What's the idea? This is where I think the East has some really keen insight on their ideas around food. What's the idea? Isn't it something like, I have to provide for me? Isn't it something like, food is something that comes from humans and from farmers? Life is something that comes from my securing it. Isn't, isn't, isn't the positive version, no. Like when it comes to my daily needs, God is the provider of life. Simplistic, of course. Instrumental, few things are more so. And it, and it keeps going. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you're the son of God, there it is again, if, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. What's the idea? This one I think takes more energy to get to the bottom of, but in my opinion, the idea here is you can't trust that God is with you. Make him prove it. Like, and, and, and you're probably not likely to go stand up on Mount Helena and jump off and try to prove that God is with you, but, but, but we have these same temptations. Can we operate as though we're, we're, we're with God and God with us despite circumstances, despite what we can see? Can we trust that our communion with Christ made possible by the cross and, and many other things, that, it, that that's the evidence that we need, that God is with us? How much does a decision change if we make it based upon the idea that God is with versus the idea that he's not? And think even, maybe, maybe some of you already gone here, how, how does this story start and how does it get off the rails? It's an idea. Did God really say? Certainly God didn't really say. What if Dallas Willard's not crazy when he suggests ideas are the most powerful thing in the world? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor, and he said to them, all these I will give you if you'll fall down and worship me. What's the idea? Certainly there's several nuances of it, but isn't it something like like a life dedicated to service to God is, is not a good life. It's the opposite of seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. I mean, here, where, where this has, for me, been tremendously helpful is even in my own worry and anxiety and just, you know, we all have the same things, just oftentimes different triggers. It's been so helpful to the extent that I can slow down and go like, wait, well, wait a minute. If I return to the right ideas, which seems foundationally, and we're going to build on these in the next couple of weeks, are like God provides life, life is a gift from God, I'm not in control of that. I don't just rely upon bread, but I rely upon a God who provides bread and life otherwise. God is with me. I can trust this tradition I'm a part of. I can trust the cross. God is with me. The life of dedicated service to God, whether I sell things or work for a church, whether I'm changing diapers right now, it is the right kind of life. Like, 
man, it's just amazing what I've seen is how quickly that can pull me out of the ditch. Like, oh yeah, it's all about the fundamental idea. So as Anna and Annie and Rob come back up here and and give us a chance to just reflect through music, I I think the question, and ushers can get ready for communion, I I think the question just becomes something around some internal auditing of, like what are the ideas right now that are driving your life? And, and is it worthwhile to hold them against, like, and what, what's the power of that idea, and what, what would be a, a healthy version, or what would be a good idea? Where, where might there be this chance to just use this next few moments to even just invite God to go, okay, here's an idea that you're kind of, you're two weeks down the road, and it's a bad idea. And we can, we can make this thing called repentance this big, intimidating word. That all, that, that's what repentance is. It's recognizing, oh man, I'm on a bad path here and I want to get back into the Jesus way. I mean, think of what a bad idea can do to a marriage. What a bad idea can, can do to a home culture. Think of what a good idea can do to an office place or to a future. Maybe you're senior in high school and there's so much intimidating or you're in college and you're about to graduate or you're in your freshman year of college and you're not sure if you're in the right place. Just how might good and bad ideas dramatically impact? And what might be the value of going, okay, at the end of the day, I'm a steward of the life God grants. I don't secure it for myself. I trust the cross. God is with me. And at the end of the day, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Narrate Church, find us online at narratechurch.org or look us up on Facebook or Instagram.